Welcome to the GW Business of Sports podcast. We talk about sports, careers, mentors, leadership, and a lot more here. And we do the show from the Foggy Bottom campus in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Hyman, professor in the Business of Sports program at GW. My producer is Henry Levy. My guest this week is Ty Botaw, Executive Vice President of Global Business Affairs for the PGA Tour. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation, in part because Ty took a very unusual path to a career as one of the most powerful administrators in professional golf. Before his current role, he was commissioner for the Ladies Professional Golf Association, and in part because he tells a great story about golf, the International Olympic Committee, Prince Albert of Monaco, and a chance meeting in the restroom. Ty, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate you coming. The Olympic Games did not include golf after 1904 until the Rio Games in 2016. And I know that you were very deeply involved in the return of golf to the Olympics. Can you tell us why, why was golf absent from the Olympics for so long? Well, there are, there are a lot of, of reasons for that. And, and you, I'm reminded of that old expression, success has many fathers, but failure is always a, an orphan. Uh, in this case, um, the failure of golf to be in the Olympics from 1904 to 2016 has a lot of fathers. I mean, it was the way the sport developed, the, the interaction between the RNA uh, and the USGA at the time, 1904, on in the early part of that period, uh, was a very different type of, of organization th- th- than the IOC was or the, the Olympics were. And so um, you had championships like the Open Championship, the U.S. Open, and amateur golf being uh, a much different type of, of uh, standalone sport at that time. And then it, as, it, as it developed over time and you had more organizations come into existence, whether it was the PGA of America and ultimately the PGA Tour, whether it was the LPGA over this period of time, um, they all had their own kind of ecosystems of competitions that were the standard in their sport. And Olympics kind of operated outside of that for sports whose pinnacle achievement was Olympic achievement versus the pinnacle in golf over that period of time were major championships um, uh, in both the men's and the women's game. And so there was this golf doesn't need the Olympics, the Olympics doesn't need golf. And that's primarily the, the, I mean, there are a lot of different fingers you could point at different people over that period of time, but uh, that was basically the the overall sense that that, that there wasn't a right match for golf in the Olympics and vice versa. It's odd because is there a more international sport than golf? I don't don't think so. I mean, that's one of the cases we made when we uh, put our bid in for getting golf back in the Olympics. But... One of the reasons we did that, um, the main reason we did that, was there was a survey done of the national golf federations from around the world that were part of the International Golf Federation. And they said, what, the, the survey asked a simple question, what, what would be the best and, and most effective way for you to grow your sport in your country? And virtually every 
sport and said if we were an Olympic sport, that would make a difference because we would then be in the pipeline of resources and investment and revenue that would come from our national government or our national Olympic committee uh, to do that, whereas we don't get it now, uh, we would if, if we were an Olympic sport. And so the PGA Tour resisted golf in the Olympics for a long time. Uh, if it involved professional players, we were always supportive of it if it was going to be amateur players, but the IOC didn't want amateurs. They wanted the best um, athletes in a particular sport if a sport were going to be added. But the Olympics take place in a core part of a PGA Tour season. We have sponsors, we have television partners, we have significant events in that time of year. We PGA Tour had just initiated the FedEx Cup uh, playoffs, which was going to be in the months of August and September, uh, right in the middle of when Olympics take place. So we resisted it. But when the RNA and the USGA and other golf organizations came to us with that information that said, we have an opportunity to bid. There's two spots opening for, on the program uh, for the 16 games. And there's seven other sports, or five other sports that are going to be, uh, six other sports that will be uh, in the process. Could you, would you be willing to help? They won't accept golf unless the best players play. So will you help us? And we decided if, if, if we didn't want to be seen as someone who was inhibiting golf's growth around the world, we want to be a facilitator of that. And so we, we uh, took a leadership position. And, and if, if our players are going to play in the Olympics, we wanted to make sure that there was a, uh, some level of involvement and oversight that in, the, in that process. And so we took that leadership position and for 18 months uh, worked to, to, to get golf back in the Olympics. And, we were fortunate to be added uh, in October of '09 in Copenhagen with Rugby Sevens. So the process, to the extent I understand it, is, is basically a vote of the IOC members. Yes. Can, can you tell me a little bit about your interaction with those members and, and what was required to persuade them that golf ought to be included? Well, I would say that it was... You know, we went around the world, literally. Uh, Peter Dawson, who was the time CEO of the of the RNA, and myself were somewhat of a tag team in this process. Uh, Peter was the president of the of the International Golf Federation, and we wanted to take a leadership role in that process. So I was asked to help help Peter with that as a as a representative of the PGA Tour. And my background in in working with the uh, with in women's golf with the LPGA was also a, a kind of a bridge to, to both the men's and the women's games in that process. So we went around and talked to IOC members and, and asked them, asked them, uh, you know, what their, what, did they support golf? Did they like golf? Were they golfers? If golf were to be up for a vote, how would you, how would you vote? What are your issues? Some had, <laughs> it's interesting, we went to a, uh, I think the first, we went to China for the 08 Beijing games and we had talked to 10 IOC members at the time, and and eight of them seemed really positive, and two were saying, oh, "I'm just, I don't see a fit." And we talked to an eleventh, and they said, uh, "How's it going?" And we said, "We think it's good." Eight out of the ten people we talked to said they love golf and they're going to vote for golf. And uh, he said, "You can't believe anything that they say. They're not bad people. They just don't like to have difficult conversations." And if and if 119 people, if, if the vote comes back 119 to 1 against, you're going to have everybody come to you. I don't know what happened. I voted for it. 
uh, that's the that was so we had to you know, all you can do is go back to those eight that you thought were positive were they genuinely and and and, and uh, demonstrably um, sincere in their in their support for golf and we went back and talked and we thought ourselves yeah well, maybe only five or six were uh, were really that and uh, we uh, had to have that that was good advice to, at the outset to, to kind of process the uh, but during Olympic sessions or during sport accords or doing these various gatherings of IOC members, you know, the word lobbying is you stood in the lobby and you talked to IOC members as they walked by. And, and not only in the lobby. No, no. There was one instance in the night before the vote in Copenhagen. I was in the bathroom with um, an IOC member, uh, Prince Albert of Monaco. Uh, and I had met him a number of times over the course of the week that we were in Copenhagen. And every time... I vote. I, I met him. Uh, it was as if it was the first time he met me, um, and so we were in the bathroom, and um, he he looked over at me and and said, uh, "You're with golf, right?" And I said, "So yeah." Well, I thought to myself, well, he finally remembered who I was. That's great. Um, I said yes, and he said, uh, "Tell me the votes tomorrow. I'm supportive. I, I'm going to vote yes." But many of my IOC members think that golf is an elitist sport and a sport that isn't really a populist sport, a sport that isn't for young people. It's a sport for old people and who are elite and who are not diverse and who are all these other things. Can you give me some statistics that might help me in my conversations with them to turn them around? And I said, well, okay, 70, the largest golf economy in the world is the United States. 75% of all the golf courses in the United States are public golf courses. 90% of the golfers in the United States, 30, almost 20 Five to 30 million people, depending on how you count golfers. 90% of them are play golf in public. So if you want to play golf, you, you, you have access to golf. And that was, that was, those are the two main statistics I gave him. And he nodded, and um, we washed our hands and went out the door. And as I was leaving, I thought to myself, do I really want the crown prince of Monaco to be saying things, something is or isn't elite? Yeah, he's, he's pretty much a common man. Yeah, he's, he's a man of the people. So um, now he's a wonderful, wonderful person and was incredibly supportive. But that was one encounter that, that encapsulated, I think, a little bit of the the process. You have royalty within the IOC. You have um, federation leaders from sport that are involved in the Olympics. Um, you have um, people from industry or people from upper echelons of, of, a, of a country in terms of a, their, their uh, position. Uh, and status, and so you you have to work through all of those to work to ask um, for the vote, if you will. And we were fortunate enough to one have the support of at the time Jacques uh, Rogue, the, the the president of the IOC, the executive committee of the IOC, were all because uh, Rogue was 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 uh, supportive. The executive committee was supportive. And the executive committee was supportive. You had. Um, the majority of IOC members who were supportive, and so we were fortunate to get to, to, to get the vote. Rugby sevens got more of a majority than we did, which, being the competitive person I am, I, I, I wasn't happy about, but I was certainly happy that we got in. So Rio in 2016, Justin Rose in Imbi Park? Yes. Well, when, on the women's side? On the women's side. Um, so Tokyo in 2020, any changes with regard to format or, or approach for, for the coming games? Nothing, nothing for form. We looked at a number of things. Golf is, we, we looked at a number of things before Rio in terms of what the right format would be. Uh, 
and golf's fortunate in it has a number of different formats you could, whether it's match play or team or um, stroke play. We ultimately chose stroke play for a number of reasons. One, we thought that if all the other significant events in golf were 72-hole stroke play, and that's the standard for the most part in our sport, we thought that Olympic achievement should be similar to what golf's achievement is in other contexts, which is major championships, you know, mm -hmm. players' championship, the, uh, all the significant events uh, in, in golf. We also wanted, a, wanted the most countries to be represented. We wanted the, the most among the, the, the highest number of people to be, to be eligible for a medal come going through the competition. And by that I mean in match play, for example, one format that we considered, the, the, the matches funnel down to four people on the final day. And so only three people win a medal, so three out of four on the final day are who everybody else gets eliminated. And as countries get eliminated, interest in the competition gets eliminated, for, for example. We, whereas in stroke play, on, a, on the night before the final round, you could have 12, 15, 20 people within two or three strokes of the lead mm. on a given. And that, we thought, would generate continuing involvement and continuing interest in a country. Before I let you go, I'd like to ask you a Thai Botox question. Okay. Your professional career did not begin with a laser focus on becoming a, a senior executive in professional golf. What, what is your advice with, and I should back up and say that, that you were an attorney mm -hmm. and you began working uh, for the LPGA Tour as a lawyer. Um, so what advice, I mean, what is the lesson that, that you think is, is most valuable with respect to your experience, your career? Well, I would say that, that you know, I, I always had an interest in, every, in all sports, uh, generally, uh, and then more specific interest in specific sports. Uh, and growing up, I, I, I played the, the stick and ball sports more than I played golf. Uh, and I, I followed men's golf. I didn't necessarily follow women's golf all that closely. I knew who some of the who some of the superstars in the sport were. But I went to law school. I, I, I practiced law for five years, uh, transactional, M&A contract work, and tried to be as good a lawyer as I possibly could in that in that, knowing that I always had an interest in sport and I always kept my eyes and ears open in terms of if there are opportunities to to do things. I represented a couple of college basketball coaches when I was practicing law, uh, helped form the Greater Cincinnati Sports and Events Commission in Cincinnati um, when I was practicing. And I got to know a, a, a gentleman by the name of Charlie Meacham who was a client of the firm and, and became a mentor to me. And, and when he became commissioner of the LPGA, he asked me to come along with him. And I was a partnership track at my firm and I was happy in Cincinnati. But I knew that, that this was some of, something of an itch I wanted to scratch. And it was a door that was opening to me that I felt in, that in looking back, it was important that I had the courage to walk through that door. Because if I hadn't, I probably would have stayed as a lawyer in Cincinnati and, and maybe made partner and maybe had a wonderful, I probably would have made more money over my career. Um, if I had stayed in law, but I wouldn't have had as an, inter an interesting life as I had 
in golf because I walked through that open door and considered doing so uh, because of the person who was asking me the question I admired, Charlie Meacham. I thought it would be an interesting adventure to go to to go work um, in a in a in in golf generally, women's golf specifically. I I thought that there was there were a number of challenges that that would be interesting to to kind of. Um, solve with Charlie in terms of selling women's sports and selling sponsorships and getting television exposure and media exposure. Um, and I learned a, it was a crash course in, in learning uh, how to um, grow uh, sport. And it was, it was something that I was uh, feel very fortunate to be able to do, and, and it's been a great adventure ever since. Well, we're so glad that you came to GW today to speak to a, a large group of students in a few minutes here, but also to speak to us on the podcast. So thank you.